This podcast is produced by The Brand is Female. Hi, I'm Mungi. Welcome to the Everyday Ubuntu podcast. Last year, when it was all eyes on everything Black, it was this period of hyper-visibility, which was hard for me because as a Black woman, I feel like in a lot of spaces I navigate, I navigate hyper-visibility and then invisibility just simultaneously. This week, my guest is Monica Samuel, an educator, community builder, social entrepreneur, and DEI consultant. Her work as an educator over the last 10 years has focused on equity, mental health, sex positivity, and consent. I resonated so deeply with Monica, the words she spoke, and the work that she does with her organization, Black Women in Motion. The thing that stuck with me the most, and that I'm still learning myself, is that we as Black women are often running ourselves ragged in the name of social justice, and we need to stop. Here's our conversation. Monica Samuel, welcome to the Everyday Ubuntu podcast. I'm so excited to have you with me today. I'm so excited to be here. I'm a little nervous, but I'm so excited to be here and sharing space with another amazing Black person. Thank you. Don't don't be nervous. Um, so the first thing I wanted to ask you has to do with our resumes and how they're not a full explanation of who we are as a human. And I'm, I'm wondering what's missing from your resume that you think people should know about you. Hmm. I mean, if it's not clear with my resume, given the history of work that I've I've done over the course of my career is my priority is and will always be the black community. Um, you know, their voices are always going to be at the center of my work unapologetically. Um, so if you're coming with any type of anti-Blackness, any type of white supremacist capitalist energy, just know that we probably shouldn't be working together. Uh, also that I will likely be calling you out and dragging your ass to fill. Mm-hmm. I like that. I, I recently said something like that to someone. I'm I'm in London at the moment and I had to meet a few people for drinks. And this one woman said, oh, you know, I don't know. Like some of my friends say all lives matters. And so I just don't touch that. And I'm like, if Black Lives Matter is controversial for you, we are just not starting at the same position. Absolutely. That's all I have to say. And she was like, okay. And I was like, so all lives matter. We're not doing that. <laughs> That's... That's it. There's nothing else to discuss. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, it's simple. I can like, I can end the conversation there. So speaking of Black black lives and Black women, could you share about your organization, Black Women in Motion, sort of the origin story and also the mission that obviously, you know, falls within your sort of purpose work? Mm-hmm. Um, I founded Black Women in Motion in January of 2013 after spending, you know, a couple years working within the Jane and Finch community. Um, and that's in the more West End part of Toronto. I had the privilege of working with Black women, girls, um, queer folks under the age of 20 and providing them, you know, with a soft place to land. Mm -hmm. I feel like at that time, there were not a lot of spaces for us to gather, for us to be seen and affirmed and validated. So it was really important that we created that, that, that safe space for them. And, you know, over the course of my three years in that community, it was hearing their stories of you know, experiencing things like human trafficking, of intimate partner violence, of, you know, being homeless, living in poverty, and various intersections. And I felt deeply inclined to, you know, create 
a space to create an organization designed specifically for them, specifically for their intersectional and layered lived experiences. So Black women and queer folks you know, are at the center of the work that Black Women in Motion, you know, does because of mm-hmm. institutionalized anti-Blackness and misogynoir and sexism that we see um, that say that their lives are substantially of lesser value, which is incorrect. So, you know, from 2015 till now, we kind of pivoted our focus to being, yes, a soft place to land always. Uh, yes, a place to build, you know, your leadership skills and, and life skills and all of those things. But Given how gender-based violence disproportionately impacts uh, Black communities, specifically Black women, non-binary and genderqueer survivors, we were like, we have to talk about this yeah, uh, because it is really rendered, I feel like gender-based violence experienced by Black folks is really rendered invisible here in Canada. The voices of Black survivors, you know, are often not believed, are often erased. Um, so it was really important for us to to do this work and continue to do this work. I understand. I love that. Um, what do the sort of the services and the programming look like that Black Women in Motion provides? Mm-hmm. Besides, you know, I think the largest part is being a safe place to land is is the starting point for most things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, in our work, uh, survivor autonomy and self-determination is really important. Um, so we do a lot of consults with the community to ensure that we are creating and being responsive to the emerging needs, the shifting needs that survivors need in community um, and ensuring that the services and programs that we do implement are, of course, coming from an intersectional place, a trauma-informed, survivor-centered place. So we have kind of four major programs that we offer uh, to community right now. So we have our Love Offering Fund, uh, which is just emergency relief that survivors may need at any given time. That was piloted last year in 2020, May of 2020, pardon me, um, just given the way COVID was running rampant in communities, specifically the survivor community. So giving folks, you know, access to food and income relief um, to deal with those levels of insecurity um, and other any other supports that need to be deployed on a needs basis. Then we have our Black Peer Education Network, which is this amazing training and capacity building initiative that hire survivors in community, you know, to learn, unlearn and relearn together in this space that is just all about challenging how rape culture shows up in community and how gender-based violence shows up in community, specifically in the Black community. Um, And then, you know, survivors have a chance to go and mobilize and further conversations on what we need to do to better show up and be allies, accomplices and co-conspirators. We have our Black Youth Employment Assistance Program. This one is really dear to my heart because recognizing how, you know, work environments are traditionally colonial, traditionally capitalist. uh, It's so important that we support survivors in developing like wellness strategies for job retention. So at the core of this initiative is about, yes, these are the systems and structures that exist. How, if you are an aspiring small business owner and things like that, how do you recreate new systems and ways of working that are from a more decolonial space? Um, But until then, we are still very much so working and living and being in the systems as they are. So how do we survive them? How do we navigate them? How do we ensure that we prioritize our wellness and our care? So a huge part of that is ensuring that survivors have access to 
culturally relevant supports. So anyone that comes in as a participant, we cover the cost for several months to have um, one-on-one sessions with a Black therapist, healer, practitioner, which is really important because mental health is still very taboo in the Black community. Um, but also and there it's is so an, hard an, to find black therapists as well. Listen, I mean, and also there's an access piece there too, right? Like not everyone has access to the financials that are required to be able to tap into that particular service, you know? So we want to ensure that we can alleviate as many barriers to access as possible. So we have a bit of a, a network of, of mental health practitioners and giving survivors the autonomy to choose, right? When we think about therapy mm-hmm. and wellness, it's almost like you're dating someone, right? You have to understand like what's their values, their their practices, their beliefs, because that's going to inform how they're able to provide care from you, care for you, um, you know, in a intersectional and decolonial place. So if you're over here denying the humanity of Black people, I definitely don't want you to be a therapist providing me, right? right? Providing me grief counseling and trauma supports and things like that. So um, that's that's definitely one of the initiatives that I definitely favor within the organization. And then more recently, our Crystals and Sage wellness, wellness initiative that we piloted this year that is specifically for Black, trans, non-binary, and gender diverse folks. Um, to be able to practice wellness, you know, from a Black intersectional feminist and trauma-informed space, and to be able to take up space. When we look at the wellness sector, when we look at things like yoga, mindfulness practitioners, is very white-centered, mm-hmm. lots of white bodies, <laughs> you know? So it's hard for us to sometimes see ourselves being able to to tap into those spaces, being able to be educators and practitioners in those spaces because representation isn't there. Um, so there's a teacher's training scholarship that we provide for folks who are interested. Because again, when we talk about barriers to access, if you're trying to do to be a yoga instructor, for example, there's this big ass like three thousand plus dollar teacher's training course that you have yeah. to do that again isn't accessible to everyone. So what we want to try to do in our programs and services is, you know, meeting people where they're at, um, providing that representation, providing a chance for folks to dream, mm-hmm. you know, what is possible. Um, and, and to do that learning and unlearning, as I mentioned before as well, but connecting survivors to the tools and resources they need to, to thrive, um, not just survive, but to thrive right. is really about what the organization is about. There were two things you said that sort of I wanted to highlight on the the whole yoga thing about sort of like, you know, it's a sort of a white industry. So interesting because they took it from a brown country. So that is always like in my head, like, well, we didn't create yoga, but okay. And the other thing is all of these programs sort of warm my heart because I don't know if, you know, black children were always told that it's important to sort of invest in ourselves and that there are always people around who want to invest in us. And all of this is sort of investing in the person and in their whole mm-hmm. self. And and I, I think that's amazing. So thank you for doing mm-hmm. that. Yeah, we try our best out here. <laughs> we're a small but mighty team. So if, you know, if some random person in the U.S. was like, well, I can't come help with programs, maybe I could help with funding or something, but they really wanted to know how they could protect Black women, what would you say to them? And I'm sure people have, you know, asked you this before. And you're like, oh, mm-hmm. this is a simple question. <laughs> wow. Um, I'm going to talk about, I mean, 
black women aren't a monolith. I mean, there's just so many Mm -hmm. layers and intersectionalities within the community. But when I think about supporting survivors specifically, as that's the mandate of the organization, um, recognizing, again, as I mentioned earlier, the anti-blackness, the erasure, the minimization, the victim blaming and shaming that is so omnipresent within community, especially when it comes to Black survivors coming forward. Mm -hmm. There's a level or there's a lack of, I should say, believability when a Black survivor says, this is what I've experienced. And a lot of that is rooted, of course, in things like, you know, the hypersexualization of Black women and femmes that we've seen since the times of chattel slavery and all those pieces. But it starts with just like shutting up and listening, right? This isn't a moment for you to interrogate (laughs) for you to victim blame and shame. It's for you to listen really empathetically um, and actively of the things that we're saying of our experiences. Because for many of us, it's everywhere we go, every institution, every space, it's a question. It is, you know, it's being dismissed. It's, It's being erased. It's not being believed. And that has such, you know, detrimental impacts on our mental health, wellness, um, on our livelihoods when we are chronically interacting with spaces and institutions that are questioning our believability. Uh, So, you know, being quiet, you know, listen first, listen, listen more is what I would say Um, and speak less. And then really, you know, practicing consent when it comes to identifying ways that you can leverage your personal power and privilege that you carry to support. So oftentimes when we listen, we listen to respond. We don't actually listen to listen and understand. Yeah. So we're already thinking like, okay, this is what this person needs. This is what, like the brain starts churning. It's like, okay, this is what I need to go and mobilize, et cetera. But when we're like listening to understand, right, we're going to be able to hear the pieces of actually what this person needs. And then we ask them, so what is it that I can do you know, within my capacity to support you. Um, So that might look like amplifying my story with my consent. That might look like, um, you know, if you are a white or non-Black POC ally, using your privilege, right? Because you don't experience anti-Blackness in this particular way to you know, be on the front lines. We see that, we saw that a lot in 2020 with the Black Lives Matter resurgence with, you know, white and non-Black POC folks on the front lines, um, not necessarily to take up space, but just being there from a sense of safety, right? Because mm-hmm. we know that um, Black folks, when we interact with the state, there's a level of brutality and violence that follows. Um, so it might, be look like, it might look like you're doing a lot of work on the front lines, um, in terms of visibility and solidarity, but not necessarily coming in there and trying to take over the narrative and center yourself. That's a little bit of a tricky slope. Yeah. Um, it absolutely would involve you giving up your power, privilege, access, right? So if you are at certain decision-making tables when it comes to survivor supports and resources that are needed, right? It may look like, hey, there's a segment of the population that we have historically excluded, right? This is deliberate. How are we going to ensure we redirect supports to ensure Black trans women, Black non-binary folks who experience gender-based violence, disproportionately high rates, have what they need, can have access to transformative justice. So 
Um, there's a little bit of self-work that's involved in this piece, right? Like understanding the biases, <laughs> understanding the things that I carry uh, that negatively impact this movement and then assessing here's where I stand. Here is my, the things I have access to. Here's the power and privilege that I have access to. And it means giving up power. So be ready to give up power or get out of the way, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. and my experiences, people that I've interacted with that are like, how do I help? How do I help? And I'm like, are you ready to give up the power that you have been given are you ready? Because that's what it's going to, yeah. you know, require. And are you trying to help or do you want some sort of, you know, bona fides or acknowledgement for this help? Mm -hmm. Or is it just really you do want to help? Mm -hmm. And we saw this has been, I mean, we've seen this, but it has been the last 18 months, a just pile of performance, like performative allyship is at a record high. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we had a couple, you know, months of just concentrated, you know, action mobilization, and then everything dissipated. And now it's like, I feel for us as an organization, we're starting from scratch. People now, you know, Black Lives Don't Matter anymore. Black Lives Matter for about five months. And mm -hmm. then now it's like, mm. so how do we continue to um, drive the conversations forward, drive the change forward when now people are disinterested again. And that's the thing. People are just like, yeah, I posted my black square and that was it. Or, you know, I shared these resources and that was it. And I'm like, no, this is lifelong work. This is a continuous process. We cannot dismantle systems in five months, mm -hmm. systems that have been here for hundreds of years. I get really annoyed at this part. No, <laughs> it's just I so mean, exhausting. I I totally understand, and I mean, you know, just like the the pandemic is still here. It's like uh, anti black racism is still here. It's not gonna go away because a few of us marched, and and gave some money here and there, and you know, a few policemen may have been fired, if even a few were fired. Um. Speaking of, how did the pandemic affect Black Women in Motion? You know, like, were, were there some things that you learned about Canada and and the world more globally from 2020? Hmm. <laughs> how did it impact Black Women in Motion? So for us as an organization, we had been doing this work for seven years. Right. Black Women in Motion turned eight in January of this year. So we celebrated seven years of just doing the work, putting our head down, doing the work. Um... I'm one of those people in leadership positions where I like to lead from the back. So I'm not very front facing. But last year, when it was all eyes on everything black, it was this period of hyper visibility, which was hard for me because as a black woman, um, I feel like in a lot of spaces I navigate, I navigate hyper visibility and then invisibility mm -hmm. just simultaneously, <laughs> you know, so going from, you know, black women, ocean, yeah, I heard of them. They do great work to being like, hey, your phone, it, your emails, everything's popping off all hours of the day, morning, people from, you know, across North America, uh, across the world, just wanting to reach out to support was a lot for us um, to manage as a, as a team of six folks, six people support upwards of 600 survivors in the city of Toronto and greater Toronto areas, which is a lot, which is not sustainable, but um it was tricky because we absolutely knew this was rooted in performance. And I think that was the painful part. 
right? It was, okay, folks are interested, but there's an expiry date attached to this. So how do we, um, you know, encourage dialogue to ensure that we get the resources and support to um, support community, to support survivors? So it was reconciling that and then also reconciling a lot of the visibility, a lot of the attention, a lot of the resources that were being redistributed to Black Women in Motion were coming from Black death. That was a lot and that weighed a lot on me for a couple of months as well, um, that this is what it requires for us to have the bare minimum to support ourselves, you know, violence, brutality, you know? So that was just a really interesting uh, time. And then, I mean, in regards to the question about Canada as a whole, I mean, I always knew Canada was an abomination. Yeah. <laughs> I have always said this um, to my circle just around whoever does Canada's PR is actually quite brilliant. Because you guys are so nice. That's how we see you. Right? The world is just like, Canada is just fantastic. It's multicultural. It's just so wonderful. And I'm like, really? Because, I mean, 60 plus communities, Indigenous communities don't have clean drinking water. Right? The RCMP is running rampant (laughs) in Indigenous communities. Like, what are you talking about? So for me... Um, it was a lot of awkward, uncomfortable conversations, conversations I also had to just tap out of, of like, I'm not going to try to justify why Canada is not perfect, why Canada is just as trash as the United States, as many other countries across the world. Um, but I will say some of these things, as, as painful as it sounds, some of these things were supposed to happen for folks to kind of take off the rose-colored glasses and see Canada for what it is. Mm-hmm. It's the same. It's a colonial state. It's an anti-Black state. It's a racist state. It's right. It's done so much plundering, so much brutality um, to Indigenous communities for so many years. Uh, Anti-Blackness is absolutely here. It just sometimes takes a different form. You know, I think where we see in the United States, there's a lot of it's blatant like, and latent. You see it, right? Yeah. There's a lot of recordings. There's a lot of instances. It's so blatant. Whereas Canada is very covert in its operations when it comes to anti-blackness, anti-indigenous racism, right? There's a lot of like systemic, institutionalized things that have existed that are, um, you know, are meant to marginalize black and indigenous communities that are meant to prevent access to basic needs right um the housing crisis that we're seeing here in the city of toronto i there's just so many things where i'm just like we are so trashed (laughs) but you know you know canada is just so wonderful it's so multicultural it's fantastic so um (laughs) it's been a lot a lot to process it's been a lot to process but yeah covid COVID, the the social justice resurgence we saw, it allowed Black Women in Motion to be seen in a way that has allowed us to be more sustainable as an organization. So I, I can't ignore how all of this chaos, how all of this sadness, this violence has also brought abundance to the organization. Mm-hmm. And for me, as I said before about reconciling the painfulness of that 
is just giving that back to community, right? We've been able to expand our love offering fund, right? It wasn't just help. The initial launch was to support 100 survivors. We supported 500 survivors last year through that program and are able now in 2021 to provide consistent support, right? We get to circle back and be like, hey, what else do you need? Okay, so folks are asking for, for mental health supports. Here, here's some peer, you know, healing circles that we're doing. Here is, you know, five sessions paid for with a black therapist of your choice. Like, here are extra fresh food boxes. Here is support for childcare. Here is support for gender affirming care. Um, it just it's allowed us to support community in ways that we honestly did not have access to because a lot of organizations like Black Women Emotion that are grassroots based. Um, experience a lot of barriers when trying to access that, you know, funding resources. So being able to kind of think outside of the box of grants and thinking about like fundraising strategies and, and like strategic partnerships with organizations that, you know, are not trying to do performative work, you know, to, to, to help our, our cause. It, it makes me think of um, the British author, Rennie Edo Lodge, who wrote, um, why I'm no longer talking to white people about race. And, you know, she said the same thing about how all of these people suddenly were reading her book. And while that is great, because it was a great book about like white people, we're not having this conversation if this is where you're starting from. Mm -hmm. Look at the racism, look at the slavery. Slavery did exist in the UK. You are not above the US or anybody else. Um, But then she was like, but it's horrible that men have to be killed and black bodies have to be killed for you all to be reading this book now. And so, as you said, you know, giving the money and putting the resources back into the community, she said, whatever money came from that statement would go towards these different organizations. But it's 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 the fact that, yes, you you have to sort of reconcile those two, like these horrible things happen so this can happen. And this is what it, it took all of us to sort of acknowledge. Yeah. Like, how much longer can we keep going through horrible things before we... We just acknowledge it. Yep. Yep. God, I don't know how I got through this year. <laughs> I mean, that's what I was about to ask you. I was going to say, what do you do for self-care or joy? Mm. Um, it's so interesting when folks ask me this question because I think, and to talk about how COVID was really important in my self-care journey, I think is really important. Mm. I think... Some things that COVID taught me about myself, about self-care, was I really needed to return to my childlike self. That period of isolation allowed me to kind of tap back into how do I actually want to live authentically and unapologetically? What does that look like? How do I reclaim my joy, my liberation, my freedom, you know, my parts, So I started, you know, doing things and reconnecting to passions um, that I had as a child, as a teenager, painting, sculpting, archery, hiking. Um, There was this returning to peace. And there was a quote that I had said last year in another speaking engagement where I was like, returning to peace is like returning to purpose. I Mm. think when we deeply connect to ourselves and that involves listening to that childlike self, I think things become clearer. That stillness really allowed me to focus my energy and attention to returning to the body because I had neglected so many parts. So I was paying attention to things I had ignored, right? I had lived 
you know, from a space of my self-worth is attached to my productivity, is attached to my output, is attached to my work. Yeah, and if you know that feeling. Those moments where I wasn't working at that pace, I was like, what the hell, what am I supposed to do with myself? Like, what am I? Who am I? So many existential questions. I probably had like 90 existential crises like over the last couple of months. (laughs) What is my purpose? Um, But it just allowed me to sit with myself. I realized I had buried myself in work for so much of my life that I didn't really know who I was. I didn't really know what I liked. I was ignoring the things that brought me joy because I was so consumed about giving to community um, that I forgot myself. I was moving too fast and I needed to slow down. So there, there is some gratitude that I can give to this whole pandemic. And again, it's reconciling how that pandemic has also you know, run rampant in Black community. And that's, mm-hmm. of course, because of different systems at play. But we've been disproportionately impacted by this. But I still have to give gratitude for the slow pace and what that brought to this entity (laughs) that is that is here before you now i had to take care of my heart i had to spend a lot of time um you know reconnecting with healing tools like therapy meditation my partner and i had you know a ritual where you know we just need to be still for a second i'm going to play some meditation music and let's just sit here together and be still and i didn't know how to do that before it was so uncomfortable for me it was so uncomfortable for me so mm-hmm. um I'm so glad I had that opportunity to now that I had that opportunity to take care of my heart to do that self-work and now it's kind of just an ongoing practice of you need to shut down at this time the weekends need to be yours like yours as well as your your husband's and um you need to do what makes you feel good and for so many years, I wasn't. I was just going. I was going. Um, and my direction was, I have to abolish gender-based violence. Like, that was my focus. And nothing else mattered, including myself. So what was beautiful as well in terms of my self-care was, I started dating my husband again. Mm. Right? We, we had created, yeah, we had co-created such a, you know, a beautiful, magical, flawed relationship over the last 16 years, but we were not tending to the garden. And I specifically was not tending to the garden consistently because I was so consumed with working. I was so consumed with, I have to do for community that anything else kind of, whatever I had left, I would give to the other things. And and those other things were like, yeah, my relationship. It still didn't really include myself. (laughs) Right. But, um... You know, over these last couple of months, I had a chance to like date again. I learned a lot about my partner in that window of time. I am still learning a lot. And that wouldn't have happened if the world didn't shut down, mm-hmm. if the world didn't shut my ass down. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Right? Like our love languages had changed so much over the 16 years we've been together. Oh, and really? We had <gasps> start asking, Yeah. <laughs> Every time I say that to someone, they're just like, Do I need to be aware of love languages changing? Oh, no. (laughs) I'm just figuring this one out. This, oh, Jesus. (laughs) Yeah. um, We have been together for a very long time. And there has been so many micro evolutions in both of our existences that have happened, which means the love languages will shift. Yeah. I think before, yeah, like 
I want gifts and this, you know? And now it's like, I want like tender moments. I don't want things. I don't want tangibles. I want quality time. And quality time also looks like I want to feel seen. And how I feel seen is like when I'm having, I live with depression, anxiety. When you see me on the cusp of like an anxiety attack, it's handing me my fidget cube. It's coming to sit next to me and holding my hand. And he's done that so much, you know, during the pandemic um, that I'm so grateful for. But we had to ask those, our, ourselves those questions. Like, actually, what do you need at this juncture yeah. in this relationship? Right. How do you want to feel loved and seen? But also outside of this, what do you need to feel fulfilled? Because there's this idea sometimes that you complete me, I complete you. I'm like, we're complete people already. And we're mm-hmm. coming together, you know, right? Yeah. And a relationship, I think, can't bring you everything or give you everything. And then it comes to what is it that you need outside of what we can do through this reciprocal relationship? You know, it may be, I need to start a business. I need to tap into my childlike self, which means exploring, uh, you know, being a coach or basketball or whatever. But that's what I need to like really feel fulfilled. And those were important questions. So yeah, I'm grateful for that time because we did a lot of talking, a lot of listening, a lot of healing and forgiving and, and building together and created new rituals and traditions to do together that were a part of like our individual and self-care practices, you know? And I think the last thing when it came to self-care was just, I need to give a fuck about myself, (laughs) right? Please, please do. (laughs) Like, don't don't run yourself ragged in the name of social justice. And I, I feel like I was being a martyr to this work for so long, right? Um... You're just now making I'm, me gasp over here because I feel like I'm talking to my therapist where she's like, you can't come from this place of like fear and scarcity. You have to come from a place of love. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you're not helping the people you think you're helping. And I'm yeah. like, okay, but still yeah. I'm scared. Oh, no, no. Therapists be dragging me to fill, honey. I know. Okay. I'm like, but are you sure I can't just like continue on this path? Because it's been, I think it's working pretty fine. And they're like, no, it's clearly not because we're here talking about these patterns for a reason. Listen. Yeah. And I know. I think one of the things I had to to reconcile was like, I have to support community in ways that are accessible and safer for me and not destructive to me, mm-hmm. right? And when we think about community work and community development, I am a part of that community. I am not separate from it, right? right? So, and therefore I need to be prioritized. I need to prioritize myself and do things from a place of like prevention, and maintenance and not like, okay, the system has crashed. I'm fully depleted. Let's go do a spa day. Well, let's go do your nails. And those are things I love to do, but I do them to reward myself for depleting myself. Mm-hmm. It doesn't make sense. Oh right? so no. Trying to be, a, <laughs> trying to be a lot more proactive in my approach. So there's times where I'm like, there's a headache that is just like really debilitating right now, but I have so many deadlines, so many meetings, commitments. And I'll just cancel everything. Sorry, canceled. And I will do that from such an unapologetic place now. And before it was coming from a place of fear, from a place of guilt, anxiety. I'm like, I can't, like, I can't. I'm like, but why can't Mm -hmm. you? But why can't you prioritize yourself? Why can't you say no? And and what good are you to people if you're gone? You know, my mom has said, you know, when you push yourself, if you were to pass, we would mourn you and then you would be replaced. 
Yes. And your workspace, you know? So why are you going to kill yourself for that? Ooh, mom was on it. I'm like, okay, mom. All right. I know. I'm like, all right, well, I guess I'll take a nap then. What mama said. (laughs) (laughs) Can we talk about the gold series and your hair story? Oh my God. Yes. Um, Can you share about that, please? Yeah. (laughs) So uh, gold series. um, Yeah, they had reached out last year again in all of the black hype and said that they wanted to partner with Black Wind Motion. Mind you, this person, her name was Renee. I love her to death. Um, This is a Black woman that was just like, I believe in you. I believe in your work. Mm -hmm. And while, yes, the circumstances as to why I'm here having this conversation, you know, of course, are coming initially from a place of performance, like, right, like, we have to support Black organizations right now because of what has transpired. Um, She's like, this can be the catalyst to really create some inner shifts within the organization. So Renee had called me like three times, (laughs) three times, like upset. I, I, I can count three, but I'm pretty sure she called me more times than that. Um, to reach out about this partnership with Black Women in Motion and Gold Series um, that was launching here in Canada or relaunching here in Canada. But it was so, I was so overwhelmed, right? My phone was blowing up at 7 a.m. I would be lying down and then woken up by a call from like Alberta or PEI of someone wanting to support or an organization wanting to support. So it was so hard. Again, keep in mind, a team of six. Yeah. It was so hard for me to juggle everything that, of course, there were things that were on the back burner or the things that I couldn't keep up with. And Gold Series actually was one of those things. So then I was like, who is this person? I know you're not trying to call this organization and t- bring your scamming ass energy. I was upset. And then I answered. So I answered the call finally. This is maybe the third or fifth call at this point. And they had also, Renee had also emailed me countless times, but right. the bombardment of emails during that time was wild. And um, Renee's like, hey, I'm calling from here. And there's this partnership that I feel like would really align with Black Women in Motion and what you represent um, and the voices that you try to amplify. Um, And I'm like, okay, yeah, sure. Like, run me the money. I was just like, I don't want, I want resources to redistribute to community. Mm -hmm. I don't want to do a blog. I don't want to sit apart. Like, it it just got such an, it was such an exhausting period of interview after interview that didn't um you know equate to financial resources which is what the organization need right this was you're getting exposure do this for free right yeah give us the money give me your money leave me alone like (laughs) was my energy for a couple of months because yes we should be furthering conversations and discourse about like anti-black racism about gender-based violence yes i get that but we have a grassroots organization that's here providing supports to community that the government fails to do. And we need resources to continue to do that, especially like in a global health pandemic where, the, where folks are, you know, in need, in crisis. Mm-hmm. So I was like, yeah, OK, this is not a priority. And then she's like, yeah, so we would like to do a donation of $50,000. I'm like, oh, OK. This is a priority. (laughs) Right? I'm like, all right. So, but everything was going so quickly, like, you know, signing contracts and things like that. And she'd call me back and she's like, we actually want to do a $100,000 donation to Black Women in Motion and work on this campaign together. So I think it was also so exciting for us to be able to create something that would center Mm -hmm. Black folks, you know, in an industry that we know has been just so historically 
you know, damaging to our self or worth and sense of self-concept where it's like the black hair conversations, like we know, right? Like it's unkept. It's mm-hmm. just unmanageable. It's ugly because it's not Eurocentric, et cetera, et cetera. So the chance to be unapologetically black, to have unapologetically black hair, the way that it grows, the way that we want to wear it. I thought it was so important. Um, and it was so beautiful. We had a chance to, of course, work with, um, you know, content creators and uh, TV media personalities and things like that. Um, but it started a lot of conversation around, you know, how how do we live and love authentically? And that starts with us. So being able to to see representation of locks, to see representation of afros, of braids, of a nice wavy weave, whatever, right? Because our hair has been so policed for so many years. Yeah. Um, so I, I was really excited and grateful to have that opportunity. And that also kind of set the stage of like, how do we want to continue to work with brands going forward? I think that was such a learning opportunity because, you know, as we reflected, um, we need to kind of set the pace of how organizations need to come and roll up to the organization, right? Folks come with their, this is what we need to do. And I'm like, actually, take a seat. This is this is how we do partnership, right? Mm-hmm. We want to be able to be creative um, and have representation and intersectionality. I oftentimes, you know, reflect on the campaign and I'm like, if things didn't move so quickly, if we weren't such a small team, like I would have probably done this a little bit differently, yeah. right? I would have wanted to ensure that not just behind the scenes, there was black, queer, you know, differently able-bodied representation, but I would want that on the camera as well because there, there is a lack of consistent visibility of black queer folks in media, yeah. in film. And yeah, there was a lot of learnings from that. I thought it was, yes, beautiful, but I thought there's always room for growth. There's, and this is what it, what came up for me a lot this year in 2021 was um, how do we continue to do this work in ways that don't compromise the, orga- the integrity of the organization? Mm-hmm. And I think it's it's scary because again, you mentioned it, right? Like when we operate from a place of scarcity of fear Sometimes we settle, mm-hmm. right? Sometimes we don't push back. Sometimes we don't challenge because, you know, we've never had these resources before. And that was absolutely real for us as an organization. And now having done the campaign and learned from it and had these great conversations, yes. But now it's like, these are our absolutes. These are the things we are not willing to compromise. So if you're trying to work with an organization, a Black-led serving organization, this is how we are going to do it, right? These are the voices that need to be prioritized. Um, This is the creative freedom that we're going to need to have. And I think the tricky part here too was like, we're an organization that really strives to work from a decolonial place. So this thing about everything is urgent is not how I operate, right? So when when P&G and Gold Series coming here with like deadlines that are absolutely unrealistic for a team of our size, it puts the team in a place of distress And the wellness of my team, the wellness of myself will always be prioritized Mm -hmm. before the service of community, before the service of a white capitalist institution like Procter & Gamble, right? Um, So there was a lot of learnings there. A lot of learnings, you know, take the good, the bad. Of course. But And then finally, I want to ask you, what is your greatest fear for humanity? You know... My, I think a fear that I have is that we continue to see value in whiteness and whiteness only, 
that we continue to be complacent in these white supremacist capitalist systems. I think what I would like to see when it comes to how humanity can shift is that we build a system, rebuild systems, rebuild a world where we are all seen, right? I think my biggest thing for me as a Black person has, can you see my humanity? Can you see it? I can't believe you just said that. Oh my God. (laughs) I literally said to someone the other day, like the bare minimum for me is that you appreciate my humanity. Otherwise we can't. I feel like you're in my brain. But this is, it's a collective experience. We both carry different intersectionalities and things like that. But like, I feel like a, a common thought process for us is just like, I want people to see our humanity, mm-hmm. right? I want to exist in this world where I am valued, where I, you know, have what I need to thrive, have what I need to live a purposeful, joyful life. Absolutely. And I want that for everybody else, really and truly. But if we continue to center whiteness, if we continue to center capitalism, if we continue to center patriarchy and all the other bullshit that white supremacy uh, has created, then I don't know. I don't know, but I will say that seeing Black people right now holding on to joy and finding joy, finding the ability to create in all of this bullshit, in all of this chaos, uh, continues to give me hope. Yeah. Because it's important that we still have that. And I was going to ask what your greatest hope is, but I think you sort of answered it. (laughs) Yeah. So thank you so much for speaking with me. Thank you for having me. My God. Of course. I just love sharing space with us. It's so important. Thank you for allowing me to be seen. And thank you for seeing me. And I'm happy I had a chance to see you in this way. Thank you so much, Monica. It was lovely to speak with you. It was lovely. I want us to have all the things, take all the money and just thrive. (laughs) Just thrive. (laughs) I hope you enjoyed this conversation today and don't forget to hit subscribe and give the show a rating and review wherever you enjoy your podcasts follow me at moongi.ingomane on instagram i'd love to hear from you and get your feedback on the show i'll be back in a week with a new episode thank you for listening to everyday ubuntu